If you guys need a Bible this morning, we do, like every Sunday and Wednesday, have Bibles in the back. If you need one, just raise your hand. We'll make sure you get a copy of God's Word to follow along. And when you get that Bible, please open to 1 Kings chapter 8. Just a few nights ago, I had the joy of attending a wedding, and for the most part, uh, weddings are a, a joyous occasion. I made a few observations that night. Most of the attendees were quite happy. Um, there was music and food. If you've been to a wedding, you know that. Uh, lots of pictures of that lovely couple um, from when they were quite young to current day. Uh, Most weddings are like this, right? People uh, give speeches, which, you know, are usually awkward and not as funny as the speech giver intends, but whatever. Uh, It's a joyous occasion. Nonetheless, there's dancing and cake and, of course, that mysterious thing called love is celebrated. Weddings are a happy moment and The joy that we have in a moment like that is connected, though, to how well we know the ones that we're celebrating. If you think about a wedding, it's not the food, maybe sometimes, but usually not. It's not the food or the music. It's not the speeches that really make or break the celebration. Our joy in celebrating is inseparably linked to how well we know what or who we're celebrating. See, just a few nights ago, as I was at that lovely wedding, a friend of mine was there, and he leaned over to me and said, I have absolutely no idea why I'm here. He said, I have never met this couple. I couldn't even tell you what they look like. And being his friend, I just laughed at him and said, dude, yeah, why why are you here? Leave. Leave. I could tell he wasn't having a very good time. Uh, he really didn't know who they were. His, his joy wasn't nearly on the same level as true family and friends of the couple getting married. Our joy, our celebration, again, it's inseparably linked to how well we know what or who we are celebrating. That's true for weddings It's true for a lot of things. Anything else that would be worthy of celebrating. Think about it this way. Some professional team wins some major championship that you know nothing about. Who cares? But if it's your team, you've watched almost every game. You know all the players, all the stats. You've watched the whole season and they went. You're celebrating big time. Your joy is through the roof because of how well you know that team. Maybe one of your friends is reading some book and she tells you how amazing it is and how great the ending is and how much she cried throughout the whole thing or whatever, you know, and you haven't read it and you're like, huh, I'm not there. I'm not with you until you read that same book or that same series and then you get it. You understand why there was such joy in that book and those characters and the story because you're familiar with it. Your knowledge allows you to truly have joy and to celebrate instead of just being bored. From weddings to winning the big game to enjoying some 
12-part series from a great author. Let me say it this way. We just can't celebrate or truly be joyful in what we do not know and what we don't understand. It's hard for us to have joy in something that we know very little about. And that's especially true with God. Turning the the chapter now in 1 Kings, we come to chapter 8. And if you've been with us, you know we've gone through the ringer of chapter 6 and 7. Just an avalanche of detail about the temple of God and decided to show you a picture this week to give you a little kind of uh, understanding of what this temple might look like. Not to distract us from, from it last week, but you know, there's just so much detail here. There's cedars and there's bronze and gold and pillars and cubits everywhere. Who remembers what a cubit is? What was it? A measurement of what? Elbow to your? You're, you're never going to forget that because I made you do it a hundred times last week. Well, here now, finally, in chapter 8, all of that building is done. It's been a long project. The construction is complete, and we have now a dedication. It's a huge celebration of the temple. It's, it's a party, and it's a real one. And God had promised to give his people rest. That's what all of this was moving towards in the temple, that God would be with his people, that he'd dwell with them finally, permanently in this spot. And back in 1 Samuel, it was Solomon's dad, David, who originally wanted to build this house for Yahweh, but God told him no and told him that his son would be the one to build this instead. And it's all come to pass. Solomon did it. He built the temple. Israel no longer wandering in the wilderness. They've established themselves here in the promised land. They have rest. And after this seven-year project, God will finally dwell in the temple. So, so much anticipation building up to this day, right? What a celebration. What, what a, a day to just be excited and joyful as they dedicate the temple. And on this day, Solomon expresses his joy and it comes out in the form of a prayer. And in this prayer, we learn how much Solomon actually knows about God. A lot of knowledge about God and a lot of joy in what God has done on display here in chapter 8. Again, inseparably linked, those two things are. We should learn from Solomon's example. God has revealed himself. He has told us so much about who he is and what he's like. And it's right here in the Bible. It's enough for us to know who he is and to celebrate what he's done for us. Because of what we can know, our celebration and our joy in Jesus for what he's done in in our past and what he's doing right now and what he'll do in the future, all of that, it's, it's meant to be a huge reason to be constantly joyful in who Christ is. It's a joy that's 
Guys, it's so much bigger than any wedding or your favorite golfer winning some big golf tournament, which may or not be happening today. It's so much bigger than some great book you're reading. This is a true reason to celebrate and have joy. And it's, again, linked to how much we know about God. That's our big idea. Our joy is connected to how well we know God. Our joy in God, it's, it's connected to how well we know Him. And I want you to write that down in a personal way, thinking about your own joy How well do we know God? It begs the question our big idea does. How well do you know him? How well do you know what he's like? Is your joy in God what it should be? And if it's not, maybe you don't know what he's done. Maybe you don't know what he'll do. And of course, because of that, it doesn't really stir your excitement. It doesn't make you want to celebrate him and and love him. It doesn't really bring you much joy when you think about God and who he is and what he's done. Solomon knew who God was and he knew what he was like and he knew what he could do. So if you're lacking confidence this morning in how well you know God, if you're thinking maybe your joy in God isn't what it should be, Solomon can help us. First Kings 8 can help and it's a wonderful celebration. It's Again, this party, this dedication of the temple, and in this moment of joy, Solomon's prayer can be overheard, and in it we learn some amazing truths about God, who he is, and and what he's like. This chapter, it's even longer than last week, Um, so we're going to have to look at it in a couple messages but let's start this morning with this question. What did Solomon know about God that led him to a, a moment like this? What did he know that caused him to have such joy in God? Let's read verses 1 to 13 and just begin to answer this question. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. This is the word of God. It says this, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's households of the sons of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. All the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. They brought up the ark of the Lord, and the tent of meeting, and all the holy utensils which were in the tent, and the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen they could not be counted or numbered. And the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the Ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside. They are there to this day. 
There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. We're going to stop right there. This is only the beginning of Solomon's prayer. And I want you to know that I know that. His joy really isn't quite in sight yet. And we're going to get to that in the weeks ahead. It's coming But I I want to focus on this first part, and here in verse 12, we begin to get from Solomon some of what he knew about God, and let's just ask again, what did Solomon know that caused him to have such joy in God? What are some essential truths that can help you know God better so that your joy in Him can grow? Well, number one, let's call it this, God has revealed Himself And yet God is hidden. Hmm. If you're paying attention, you you may be concerned. How can God both be revealed and hidden? Well, let me explain. Solomon, likely from the wisdom that I believe God gave him, he understood some marvelous truths about God, and he understood it in in the range in which God allows any of us to understand it. This is truly the first paradox of several here in this chapter. And paradox is, uh, it's something that, as you look at it initially, it's like two things or two truths that seem to go against each other, that seem to contradict each other. But after really investigating and looking at those truths in detail, we understand that they, they actually work together. It's a paradox. And That's what we have here. Like, how can God be hidden and also revealed? Paradox. Um, You may think about it like two sides of the same coin. I think that can be a helpful way to consider it. When it comes to God, there's two parts, and we need to make sure that we understand both. We're missing something if we don't look at all of it. God wants us to have this whole picture of him. It's complicated, but we still need to try to understand it. And for whatever reason, Solomon talks about these wonderful truths about God right here in 1 Kings 8. There are several of these combinations, these opposing pairs, these opposite sides of the coin here in this prayer. And he Really, they are here to help us understand God all the more. They're here for us to just celebrate God for all he's done because we get to know him more and more right here. It starts with this one. The the first one is in the way God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself to us, and yet God is also someone we can't see. There is so much about God that we get to know. We have his word, and, and that's incredible. And there's certainly a lot about God that must remain a mystery that we don't fully understand. Why do I say that? Well, it's here in verse 10. We, we have this hidden part of God, this, this cloud. 
And if you've read your Bible, that's something that we've come across before. It, it wasn't really like the temple. It was called the tabernacle. It was a smaller version. It was a portable version for God to have a place to dwell with his people. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, we get some helpful insight. Moses erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar He hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus, Moses finished the work. He finished the tabernacle. It says in Exodus 40, 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the same cloud, that same word here, filled that that portable temple. And that cloud was meant to be a symbol to God's people of God's presence. It was to let them know that God was there, but it was also purposed to cover his glory. It was meant to conceal God's presence. God people, they they knew he was there. They could see that cloud. They knew it was God, but they also did not get to fully see him. And God used that cloud to let them know when it was time to move and it was time to stay. That cloud would move or or come to rest and all that was helpful for God's people. But in this cloud, there is mystery when it comes to God's presence. No one gets to see him because God's glory is far too much for any man, woman, or junior higher to possibly process. I'm pretty sure we would just melt if we got to see God's presence. Now, I don't know for sure, but it seems like that's what would happen. God's glory is a lot, and it has to be hidden. So here in 1 Kings, we have this same cloud. God is interrupting the priest's work, and Solomon says in verse 11 that this cloud is also the glory of the Lord, just like Moses said. It's a wonderful reality. God is God. We are not, and we can't handle his presence. He has to mask it and hide it in in a cloud. So God's glory, though, it's, it's revealed, but it's also hidden. And sometimes that's how we think about God. He's hidden. I don't see him. I don't know him. It's just so much of a mystery. But I want to talk about this paradox, the other part. You may have noticed as we read those first 13 verses how much the word ark was mentioned. The ark, the ark, the ark, the ark. It's like eight times here in this section. And what's so special about the ark? Well, verse 9 says, There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land. Verse 9, so helpful. The ark contained those Two tablets, and on those tablets were the very words of God's commandments to his people, those ten words of God's expectation for his people. They could understand who God was and clearly what God expected of them. God is not just mystery, he's not only hidden, he's also very much revealed. God spoke and he made it clear and he wrote it down so his people could live under his direction, under his word. They could know his expectation. They could understand his will. Can we see God in a clear and transparent way? No, we can't. 
He has to hide his glory from us. He has to cover it because it's far too much for us. But that doesn't mean God remains a mystery. He's made his will so clear to us. He's told us who he is and what he's like and what he expects of us as his creation. And you and I have much more than two stone tablets. We have his word. It's true we can't know him fully, but we can know him adequately. That's so important to understand. If you have a Bible, you guys, you have enough. You have more than enough. God's people didn't need to see behind the cloud. They needed to see what God had written on those stones. That paradox is so helpful for us to understand. You and I are in a similar situation. We don't need to see God. We need to learn what he has written down in his word. That is so important. And his word, it can help us understand so much. That life that he wants us to live, it begins with faith in him. That's God's expectation for all of you to begin a life in him, to become a new creation in him, to have faith, to believe, to believe that Jesus died for you, even though you weren't there to see it, to believe that God sent his son to hang on a cross and pay for your sin, even though you weren't there. God wants you to believe that he's real, even though you can't see. That's a very definition of faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, God says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That you believe even though you haven't seen, but you believe because you've read You know what God has said. You know what God's expectation is for you. He wants you to believe in what you've read from his word. He wants you to submit your life to him to get saved and then to live your life his way. How do we know what that's about? Well, it's all again right here. Like Solomon, you... you, You need the stone tablets to know that God has revealed himself to you. What did God's people know in 1 Kings 8? Well, they had these Ten Commandments, these two stone tablets. They knew God didn't want them to worship any other gods. They knew that God was really serious about idols and about worshiping anyone besides himself. God didn't even want them to take his name in vain, and God cared how they interacted with each other. They knew enough to know that that lying was bad and they needed to honor their parents and no murder and no stealing, no coveting. God wanted them to love him most and he wanted them to love each other as much as they loved themselves. And that's exactly what Jesus says to his disciples later in Matthew. That's the whole thing. Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then another commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. We can't see God, but he's given us his word. There is much about him that's hidden, and it makes us scratch our head and kind of be curious. But we need to remember that we have everything we need right here in Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a verse that every junior higher should know. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. 
And then Paul says something in the next verse that's so important, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What's Paul saying? Well, this is all you need. This is all you need to know how to live the way God expects you to live. It's enough to complete you and equip you for the life that you're called to live in Christ. His first truth here, it's so important because so often young people only see the cloud. They look around and they think God isn't here. I don't see him. I can't see him. And yet there's so much more to God than that. That's just one side of that coin. I'm sure as the cloud filled that temple that day that many people were disappointed that they didn't get to see God. They hoped that they would finally be able to see him. Here's this beautiful temple. It's been seven years now. Finally, here comes God and it's a cloud. But that cloud didn't disappoint Solomon, not even one bit. He was still so joyful. And we're going to get to that in, in a couple weeks. Five more comparisons to make. But for this morning, I just want us to look at this and think about this. I'm wondering the same about you. Do you feel the same way? Are you disappointed in the hiddenness of God that I can't see him? Are you bummed that the best that we get is a cloud? You question in your heart, why can't you see God? Well, the answer is you can. The same way the people could in Solomon's day, you can see God right here in his word. Everything you need to know, it's right here. And we have something so much better than what the people of God did in Solomon's day. We have this whole Bible So much rich truth. And we also have the words of Jesus. We just finished the Gospel of Luke, and in it we got an amazing glimpse of who God is. Something so much better and richer than the Old Testament. Jesus helps us to understand God because He is God. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in this last day, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what's behind the cloud? It's Jesus. You want to know what God looks like and and what he's all about? It's Jesus. It's the life of Christ. And we can read it and we can know it and we can understand so much about who God is. He's revealed and he's also hidden. But in this paradox, we know that we have everything that we need. Father, thank you for our time this morning. We are so grateful to even begin to look at this first really important truth about who you are. As we'll get to in the weeks ahead, as we see how this knowledge of you can grow our joy and our worship and our love of you, Father, I pray that you would write these big truths on all of our hearts. Help us to understand who you are. Help us to understand that you are want us to know 
you in, in every way. God, thank you for giving us your word that we can know you and that we can understand your expectation for us. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen.